welcome to The Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In response to the emergence of COVID-19, the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is releasing a series of podcasts to help clinicians adapt their services to telehealth delivery and other care models. On today's podcast, we're discussing family planning care for adolescents with Dr. David Bell and Dr. Liz Romer. Dr. Bell is an adolescent medicine physician who has served as the medical director of the Young Men's Clinic at the New York Presbyterian Hospital for over 20 years. Dr. Bell is also an associate professor at Columbia University Irving Medical Center and Mailman School of Public Health. In addition to his medical degree from the University of Texas, Dr. Bell holds an MPH in maternal and child health from the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Liz Romer is a nurse practitioner at Children's Hospital Colorado, where she has served as the director of their family planning program for 18 years. She's also an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Dr. Romer received both her MSN and doctorate of nursing practice from the University of Colorado. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bell and Dr. Romer. We're so excited to have you on today. So just to dive right in, What are the particular concerns around COVID-19 for adolescent patient populations? Dr. Bell? I feel compelled to have us define adolescence and adolescents within the specific age groups for the audience. How do we want to define them? Under 18 or under 24? Let's go with under 24. Okay. So that actually broadens out our concerns. I would say for COVID-19, in a sense, at one point we were under the impression that covid didn't affect young people as often as it did the elderly, and especially from the context of fatalities. However, recently, and particularly here in New York City and at Columbia University, we have identified a new post-inflammatory component that is affecting adolescents and children that's similar to what we've known as Kawasaki syndrome in the past. So that's one concern. The other concerns have to do with the public health measures we've taken to decrease our infection rates overall. And so our social isolation and our time in-house, our sort of contained time, has challenged many of our uh, social circumstances. And I would say for adolescents has also challenged some of their developmental milestones that they need to achieve, or at least how they achieve them. And one of those is sort of friendships and independence and sort of being with friends and being independent. With that, the exploration of their intimate relationships has also potentially been affected. If we stick with the under 18 that have been at home with their family, they have definitely been confined. The 20 to 24 age group can be different. Some of them may have been sheltered in with their family and some haven't. Turns out that my son is 21 and he graduated from college, uh, although it was a virtual graduation, but he was able to stay in off-campus housing and stay in another state without coming home. So he still has his relative freedom, but that's not the case, I think, with all. And what about for you, Dr. Romer, in Colorado? I mean, I think 
the concerns are similar as to what Dr. Bell described. I think we're all thoughtful about the impact developmentally, particularly socially. I think as we continue down this process of unknown length and impact, we're all really thinking about additional concerns around mental health. It was already on our radar, but we're really thinking even more about this. I think many of us who are in adolescent healthcare are concerned about who we're not hearing from. And so I think this is so unknown and the implications long-term for youth is really is to be developed and to, you know, is a discovery that we aren't yet quite aware. And so we're really thinking about who we're not hearing from and why and how we're going to iterate on our practice, our delivery systems and so forth to carve a new path forward and uh, navigate this with them forward. Dr. Romer, you mentioned delivery of services. Have either of you planned to or are you currently utilizing telehealth platforms with your adolescent patients? And how did you determine which platform or platforms to use with them? Dr. Romer? You know, I wish I could say that we had the luxury of surveying and picking um, what was the best. I think we chose and went with everything that was available to us. And so initially, we went with the platforms that were connected to our EHR or medical records. And then as our state loosened the restrictions around how we could provide telemedicine and telehealth services, we used everything that we could. And so really reaching to the developmental need and where youth are at, trying to figure out how we could connect. So we did it within the current platform. If they were connected with us, we used telephone. And then ironically, midstream, we actually launched something that we were developing, which was a video visit. So we are finding that breadth of use and we're using whatever it is that they have access to, to try and connect with them. So it's broad reaching. And I can't say that it's been a a thought out process. It's really um, casting a wide net and using everything we can. And what about for you, Dr. Bell? So we're using telehealth currently. Our platform was predetermined for us by my institution. Interestingly enough, we had just changed to a new electronic medical record a month before the pandemic hit. So all of our patients are new in our electronic medical record. It created a challenge and has created a challenge, but it actually was a benefit because telehealth visits were easily incorporated and able to be implemented in relatively short notice. We had just learned the system a month before, so everything was new, and telehealth just became another component of what was new. And one of the biggest issues in telehealth, not just with family planning, but with all forms of medicine that's delivered via telehealth, is privacy. How do your practices deal with privacy issues with your adolescent patients? And what do you do to document consent around confidentiality, Dr. Bell? In the telehealth component, it's mainly a request that they are in or find a private space to talk and possibly do a video exam if that's necessary. And for some adolescents and young adults, it's their bedroom. For some, it's their bathroom. And in both, the challenge can be lighting at times if you're trying to actually do some type of visual exam. As an adolescent provider, I have never been in a context where we've documented consent around confidentiality. We've always asked and sort of explicitly informed adolescents about confidentiality, but not necessarily documented 
our current standardized language around the, our telehealth services or more about the telehealth services themselves and consenting to that type of service more than it is about consenting to confidential care. And what about for you, Dr. Romer? It's a loaded question because there's several elements to it. You know, how do we help everyone understand the platform and the privacy issues around the various ways in which we're doing this? And so it's a little bit simpler when it's embedded in your EHR. It's more complicated when you're talking about a telephone call or a video visit. And so there was not, you know, I think every one of us experienced a learning curve in getting to a place where we were not only figuring out how to communicate it with our patients, but also document it. And so there's a variety of ways depending on which platform or which method you're using um, telephone versus video versus some of the other Skype, FaceTime, other methods of connecting with our patients. Particular to adolescents in this point in time is also thinking not only as Dr. Bell described the location of which they are conducting the visit, right? So often I think we're finding that our patients are in cars or in bathrooms as you described. I think the other thing that's interesting as providers to observe is when we're seeing patients not have a deep of privacy concern as we might have for them. So for example, doing it in a more public space. And so I think we're all going to learn a ton through this about where it's important to some and where it's not important to others and what's our role in having a conversation about where they might be, what the risk is to them and how, you know, what are their values around the privacy of the conversation. Documentation, again, learning, right? And figuring out how we're going to make sure that this is done well as we continue to move forward. I'd say it was messy in the beginning and I think we're all improving on this, um, but finding the ways depending on which platform you're using uh, to make sure that what format was used for that visit and then, you know, how we had the conversation and making it simple to do so it wasn't burdensome to the provider and adding additional time for their process. Has using telehealth platforms affected how you as clinicians communicate with parents or caregivers about adolescent services? In what ways? And how do you support parental involvement with adolescent care during this time? Dr. Romer? We are all learning how to use these new formats and how to engage parents in new ways. We as adolescent health providers have a long history of experience in navigating how youth engage with their parents around conversations in regards to their sexual and reproductive health. And so that has not changed for us. It's now in a new format, right? So as we move forward and we look to a more permanent presence of telehealth in our clinics and practices for the long term, we're going to find new ways to navigate the well child visit. You know, what one of the biggest things I think we would share in terms of what we teach people is how to encourage conversation and then encourage separation in a visit. So how will that look as we move forward with telehealth and our practices? For now, it's really thinking through the same processes, which is how are we connecting youth with the services that they need and doing it in a way that's consistent with their developmental age and their values and so forth. And then how do we continue to have dialogue with them about what their parent engagement is as they move forward? So really, in many ways, thinking through it in, in the same ways that we have before but also paying attention to what's where's the space that they are physically, evaluating the risk and so forth around confidentiality, and then moving through those conversations it, very similarly to how we have done it before. And what about for you, Dr. Bell? I would agree with Dr. Romer. In New York State, adolescents can seek confidential services without the requirement of notification of parents and caregivers. I know that that's not the case across the country. As Dr. Romer suggested and said, we 
have always encouraged the adolescent to have a trusted adult to confide in. That may be the parent, it may be the guardian or caretaker, or it may be another trusted adult. That really has not changed. And we're hoping and in the future in our new normal to have just as robust of access for our adolescents as we have had in the past. Another issue with telehealth services that is seen kind of across the board is the sort of triaging that's required, determining who can be seen via telehealth and who needs an in-person visit. What factors go into your triage methods, Dr. Bell? So during the rise and peak of New York City's COVID infections, all in-person services were stopped for my organization, with the exception of kids under two years of age and pregnant women receiving OB care. I happen to know from a Department of Health survey that there were less than five clinical services in the entire city that were open to seeing adolescent patients in person for sexual and reproductive health. Now we are well past our peak and hopefully toward our least number of new infections and hospitalizations and fatalities, but we're still attempting to decrease the chances of having another peak. And part of that management is to continue mostly telehealth visits and phase in in-person visits. Now we aspire to 20% of our patients in person. All patients are required to have a telehealth visit first, and if there is a need to see the patient in person, the visit will be scheduled after. And what about for you, Dr. Romer? What's even beneficial coming from OPA is the designation that family planning and reproductive services are essential. And so moving from that framework to say, hey, this is an essential service, we really moved to thinking through how could we continue to deliver um, patients what they needed and do it in a way that maintains safety for them, as well as honoring stay-at-home orders and so forth. So it was quick iteration and who was it essential to see in clinic and pushed providers to really think through what was required for provision of contraception or STD screening and so forth. So initially, our only in-person visits were for symptomatic patients or somebody who needed to be seen. We did move towards an in-car delivery service for methods like Depo-Provera and as well as pills. As restrictions have lifted, we created a protocol as quick as we could because we were feeling we really value access to comprehensive, to all the methods, right? So comprehensive access. And so we were eager to find pathways to get to broaden our access to all methods, which included procedures. And so created a process that we felt minimized face-to-face time using telephone visits or telehealth visits prior to in-clinic visits to decrease that face-to-face time. So it began in one phase and then quickly moved towards how could we institute processes that ensured safety, but maintained access. And as we move forward, I think we'll have pieces of this that, you know, sustain. And I think that are actually serving adolescents in in a more effective and more useful way for them. So we'll also look to what will continue. So for example, we're looking at how we might bring forward mail order STD. We weren't able to do that. They could pick it up at clinic, but we're really, this has pushed us actually, I think, to some vast improvements in the delivery specifically for adolescents. So while it's been a challenge, I think we're all working towards um, holding on to the advances and pushing those forward for the benefit of adolescents moving forward. 
And as Dr. Bell mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, there has been that inflammatory post-COVID response in young people. But are you seeing an increase in other specific health problems or health concerns while adolescents are sheltering in place due to COVID-19? Dr. Romer? I mentioned this before, I think we're worried about mental health. So specifically the isolation, the social involvement, all those pieces are vital in this age group. And I I think we're seeing it and we're worried about it and also looking to these methodologies to how can we not only meet the needs of sexual reproductive health, but we're really broadening and thinking through what are new ways in which we can address the mental health needs. And what about you, Dr. Bell? Entirely agree with Dr. Romer. We're seeing more patients with anxiety and depression, and the pandemic has exacerbated not only those who had a history of anxiety, but now have other patients who never had anxiety in the past. The other worrisome component of the pandemic and stay-at-home are the potential for abuse of our adolescents. And we don't have any current knowledge around most of that issue, but we know that it is occurring and has a high propensity to be occurring at this point in time. And so we're very worried about those issues for our adolescents. And we've been dealing with COVID-19 for several months now. Over these past few months, have you noticed a trend of adolescents seeking care more or less frequently? Dr. Bao? Because we had sort of a system-wide decision of how we minimize services, it's hard for me to describe that it was the adolescent that failed to utilize or access our services. I think it was the adults that made the decision that they couldn't for a period of time. And now we have to determine whether they'll come back and when, how fast they'll come back to our services. And what about you, Dr. Romer? I agree. We self-impose a shift in their use. And so we're continuing to roll out of those changes. I would say that I would agree. And I think what will be interesting is to evaluate adolescent use of services after we move out of the restrictions. I think we have seen incredible uptick and use of all the methods of communication that are available to us now. And it includes telephone and even the car visits. Every bit of feedback we get was relief in their ability to access and excitement that they didn't have to come into clinic. So it will be interesting to see how effective we are at ever getting people back at the capacity that we had before. I'm not worried, though, about volumes. I am worried about those who have not been able to connect for the variety of reasons at which this is a challenge for them. And so it is vital that we get back to capacity to seeing patients in person. And I'm delighted that this has been so successful for adolescents specifically. And I think that's a surprise to many of us, but I am, there is a segment of, of youth who I am really worried about. And so they'll be, I think, at top of most of our minds as we emerge from this. I'd like to say that in my mind, I'm not surprised that adolescents are so digitally savvy I think we all know that they are and have been for quite some time. I think the value added, if we can say that for the pandemic, we have opened up avenues of access that has an incredible potential for adolescents for our future and possibly for our adolescents that 
live in rural areas, as well as our adolescents that need some degree of a touch point, even if it's by video for a rash or something to assure them that their health is fine or that they need some care. There is an interesting level of value that we have gained from the pandemic that I am grateful for in some ways. And sort of similarly, going along with the last question, and I realize that we're still in the midst of this pandemic, so it's hard to say, but have you noticed any trends in risk behaviors changing within the adolescent population and in what ways? Dr. Romer? I think it's too early to tell. And I think, you know, we'll find out more as time goes on. So I think, again, I sound like I'm worrying a lot and I'm not, you know, I'm really thoughtful about just who is self-selecting to contact us. I'm not in my practice seeing significant changes, except for that we're seeing less people in person. And so there is an increase in interest in self-controlled methods because people are concerned about coming in. So for example, sub-Q depot is a conversation we rarely had before, and it is on many people's minds. And so it's great to have another method of access, but I can't say that I'm seeing a change in behaviors at this point in time. The only other comment I'd add, and I don't mean to bring up the same conversation or the same question that we had before, but I'm also really interested in how this new way of communicating with patients might be shifting power dynamics, which is we're in a much more even playing field to them and developmentally might just really speak to their needs in a different way when we're not sitting in our exam room in our power, but it's now much more level. And perhaps they feel a greater sense of ease about the conversation, about the questions that they have and um, the way in which they want to access. So sorry to plug another piece uh, to the previous conversation, but I'm not seeing much in behavior change at this point. No, that's absolutely fine. What about you, Dr. Bell? What have you seen? So I also think it's too early to tell. I do think we need separate and distinguish between the under 18s or the under 21s that may still be living at home or had to return home to their parents. They are in a more confined state, a more circumscribed state that risky behaviors or intimate behaviors may be less able to happen. However, there are our young people that are out on their own and of those young adults, I have not seen any change in their behavior. And as I have uh, discussed in a, a recent sort of journal interview, our risky behaviors didn't change with HIV. And so I don't suspect that they will change with the pandemic. From a sexual risk standpoint, besides being close to another person, we actually haven't yet determined that it is passed on by sexual activity. So I think the adolescents and young adults are paying attention to that message and sort of understanding that it's close contact and they're mitigating their risk as they have in their minds for all sorts of things, whether they've done it well or they've done it poorly. See as unique barriers for adolescent healthcare during COVID 19, and how can clinicians work to address those barriers? Dr. Bell? 
I think it boils down to what we've been talking about already, privacy, confidentiality, and access. National response to the pandemic has been so diverse, it's hard to understand if the same opportunities and barriers exist across the country. But we're learning how to ensure that conversations and sort of our visits are private in the telehealth world, as well as confidential. And from a telehealth concept, I think access it has been improved overall, so more of an opportunity than a barrier. But as we think about how clinicians can work to address those barriers, I think communication is the key, sort of un- helping to discuss privacy, discuss confidentiality. If there are multiple ways of access to services, we need to communicate that to adolescents so they can feel confident and self-efficacious enough to reach out to us. What about you, Dr. Romer? I agree that we've talked about many of the barriers already. I think many of the barriers unique to adolescents pre-COVID are, are the same as we've described. So confidentiality and you know, we mentioned consent, privacy. Privacy is now expanded uh, because we don't see who's in earshot. And so it's, it's thoughtful for all of us thinking about those safety issues, as Dr. Bell described before, really thinking about risk for violence exposure as this, even when this began and as it progresses and how do we conduct effective screening and connection when when that is revealed in a conversation with the youth. Most, if not all, of the adolescent patients you've seen have had school years cut short, had to learn new ways of engaging in the classroom, have missed important events to them like prom or graduation. And now they're witnessing mass protests against racism. Some of them may even be there or are affected by these protests. How can clinicians, in taking in these current events, also support the mental and emotional well-being during all these changes. We've talked about depression and anxiety being more prevalent, but what are some specific actions that clinicians can take? I think the first and foremost, acknowledging the impact of all the of the events on our mental health and emotional well-being, first and foremost, is something a clinician should do. Um, many of my patients have had personal losses due to the pandemic. Those losses are real and tangible. Uh, the pandemic and the protest, I feel, are synergistic at this point. The pandemic has allowed for prolonged activism that may not have been feasible without the loss of jobs and stay-at-home orders. I think we should be clear that many of the adolescents we serve have experienced the racism that is being protested. The mass protests are not the problem for them or for us. It's the continuation of the systemic injustice and racism that affects their daily lives that's the problem. And what about you, Dr. Romer? I wholeheartedly agree. I think one of the most important things as clinicians that we can do right now is listen, find ways to create connection. For many of us, we think about youth and adolescents is living digitally. And I think that's absolutely true. And they want human connection. And so we serve as a point for that. For them, this is an incredibly impactful time for them. And I think we won't necessarily feel equipped to always have the right thing to say or the right thing to do. But one of the most important things that we can do as providers is listen to our patients. They are wanting connection and they are wanting to be heard. And I think we are here to support them. They are unique in their experience and they are experts in themselves and they will teach us what they need if we take the time to listen. And so not to steal from 
Hamilton, but talk less, smile more. We, we don't need to be an expert and we don't need to say the right thing all the time. We often just need to slow down, find a way to look them in the eye digitally, which is not easy, and, and be there. Well, it's been great to talk with you both today, but unfortunately, our time is running short. But before you go, what are your final takeaways for our clinicians going forward? Dr. Romer? I love adolescents, and I always am here to help anyone else find a similar passion in serving this population. I think we've talked about many of the unique needs during this pandemic. I think it's not to be lost about the multitude of things of which they have experienced and lost and are, and are living through right now. And as adults who have not lived and experienced in our youth, similar to them, we can take some of the pressure off to feel like we have to have answers, um, but really just coming forward as adults who care, have something to offer in terms of our expertise and valuing theirs. And what about you, Dr. Bell? We're experiencing unprecedented times for our lifetime. I think that as an adolescent clinician, just as Dr. Romer, that I love working with adolescents. I love their honesty. I love their candidness. And I love hearing them and supporting how they can be their best selves in their future. I think for the clinicians that are listening and clinicians around the world that are taking care of adolescents, one of the best things we can do is make sure we take care of ourselves and understand that how to make sure that we are in the best mental and emotional space so that we can care for them as well. Dr. Romer? I had one more thing I wanted to say, which is our future leaders are in this group. And so, you know, you never know which one of your patients could be somebody um, who's going to lead us to the future. And so look, look for the bright side and the positive in those interactions and, you know, hope that you get to interact with one of them. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today and for sharing your time and expertise. For more content, search for the Family Planning Files podcast or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. This podcast is supported by award number 5 FPTPA 006029-02-00 from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the presenters and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS, OASH, or OPA. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of the Family Planning Files.